Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I read to you from the second chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews, reading the first four verses in Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles, and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. If I were to survey 100 people and ask them the question, what is the greatest danger facing the church as well as individual Christian people, believers, today? I wonder what sort of answers we would receive to that question. I'm sure a number of those surveyed would say the greatest danger facing the church is a public health crisis. It's certainly been the dominant thought on many people's minds over the past year plus. Someone else says, I suspect it would be uh, an oppressive government. That's the greatest threat facing Christianity today. Someone else might say budget shortfalls. Many people have one or another of these concerns as they think about the testimony of the church in the lives of believers in the modern world. The answer given to us in the passage before us this morning, though, is surprising. And it's the identical answer to this question concerning the greatest danger facing believers. It's the identical answer today that it has been in every previous generation in the history of Christianity. The greatest danger facing you and me as individuals today and the cause of Christ in general, is the danger of losing focus on the basic message of the gospel, the danger of forgetting this great salvation of which the text speaks, that God has given to us by his grace, the danger, if you please, of being distracted from the main thing and drifting away from the heart and soul of what the church is about, the gospel of the grace of God. I suggest that there's nothing more perilous to Christian people today than to lose focus on the main thing, to forget about Jesus, to wander away from the greatest thing God's ever done for us, which is to save our souls from eternal ruin. See, preacher, there are so many more pressing concerns today We have so many things that are more important, but I suggest, my beloved, there's no issue greater in your life or mine, whether you know it or not, than our understanding of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. This was the danger facing these Hebrew Christians in the first century. Listen to our text again. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. That is, we need to pay closer attention to sharpen our focus. We need to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. He's talking about 
the danger of distraction. And he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You may remember the historical backdrop that we've tried to paint in which the writer addresses these Hebrew Christians. What was happening in that society at the time? Well, they were under pressure. They were very discouraged. They were losing heart because many of them were seen as traitors and Benedict Arnold's by their fellow Jews. You see, these were people who had converted from the Jewish synagogue to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine yourself living in a community surrounded by people of like mind and suddenly a few of those people jump ship and begin to believe something entirely different to worship in a way that is distinct from the rest. Imagine the kind of fallout there would be to that activity. Imagine what would happen. Many of these people probably lost their jobs. Others had their homes vandalized, as chapter 10 of this letter tells us. They took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. Can you imagine coming home and finding your pantry turned over and your house ransacked just because your neighbors disagreed with what you believed? Many of them were seen, again, as traitors to the Jewish religion. These were Jews who were no longer attending synagogue on the Saturday Sabbath, but they were joining with the Christians on Lord's Day morning in celebration of the Messiah, which they said, we believe he is Jesus of Nazareth. He has come. Jesus is the Christ. And of course, the repercussions of that, the ramifications of that decision played themselves out in their daily lives. And because of the intense pressure, many of them were ready to go back to the law. Many of them had reached the conclusion it's not worth it. I mean, life is too short to be miserable. So we might as well just compromise our newfound faith. Let's recant. Let's go back to the synagogue. Let's tell them we're sorry because this profession of faith in Jesus Christ has brought nothing but trouble and heartache into our lives. And it's to those people that the apostle writes the letter to the Hebrews to show them that what they have in Jesus Christ is so much better than what the Jews have under the law. Jesus is superior to the prophets, and he is superior to the angels. And as he comes into the second chapter, this doctrine that he's been teaching us in the first chapter concerning the supremacy and preeminence of Jesus Christ now gives way to a practical application. You know, doctrine in the Bible is never intended simply to be academic or scholastic. It's never intended to be something purely speculative or notional. God teaches us truth so that we can put it into practice in our lives, right? He intends for doctrine to be applied to life. Doctrine is meant to lead to practice. Theology should lead to doxology. Grace should lead to godliness. I believe there's a disconnect sometimes in the minds of professing believers when they say, well, this is what I believe. Well, that's wonderful that you know what you believe, but how does it apply to your life? And how do you respond to what you believe? You see, dear friends, if we truly believe that God has given us the greatest gift that a poor sinner could ever receive, Shouldn't that translate into the way that we live our lives? Shouldn't that doctrine play out in our attitudes, the way we treat other people, and in 
how we order our priorities in life. Now, this is the first of five warning passages in the Hebrew epistle. Here in chapter 2, the first of five. And these warnings are intended as admonitions to think twice before you throw away what God has given you. My friends, I would say that to you today. May I issue a divinely inspired warning to each of us today against drifting away from the truth of the gospel and becoming so enamored with this world that we imperceptibly, though it may be, that we lose the keen edge that is upon our souls, that our minds become dull of hearing, and that we lose our focus on what really matters in life. I would ask you today, my friends, do you know what really matters in life? You say, oh yes, making money, living comfortably. What really matters in life is being popular, having power, having influence. I'm telling you, dear friends, nothing matters as much as this great salvation that God has given you. And you will never receive a gift in this world that is more precious and more valuable than what God has already given you in the forgiveness of your sins and a heavenly home and a rescue from eternal judgment. You see, dear friends, the danger of losing focus, of letting these things slip, is very real. These 2,000 years after the epistle to the Hebrews was first composed. In other words, human nature hasn't changed any, has it? So what the apostle is doing in this passage is saying basically that we've received a great salvation. And therefore, we must respond accordingly. We might say that the entire Hebrew letter could be summarized in this expression, God has spoken, now how will you respond? God has revealed his truth. My beloved, if you and I have ears to hear it and eyes to see it this morning, May we respond in a way that is consistent with the preciousness of this gospel message that he's revealed to us. So the theme of this passage is really the superiority of the gospel to the law. If those Jews that were under the law were required to take the law seriously, the apostle says in our text, shouldn't you and I take the good news of this great salvation even more seriously than they what Paul is saying in this passage, in other words, is the same thing that is said in Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much is required. You see, my friends, we've been given the greatest privilege of any generation in human history. You are the most blessed characters in the history of humanity. May God give us eyes to see it. We have more light. We have more understanding than any group of people before us. Jesus said this, many wise men have desired to understand the things that you understand. Many prophets have desired to see the things that you see, but they have not seen nor understood them. Even the angels desire to look into those things which you and I gaze upon in view this morning. My beloved, how blessed you are. Need I remind you today that you are incredibly privileged not because of your race, not because of your economic status. You are privileged because God in his grace has marked you out as his own. And he has revealed to you the greatest gift that has ever been given in the history of humanity, the unspeakable, incredible gift of salvation from your sins. He calls it a great salvation in our text. Now, interestingly, 
he had introduced this subject in the last verse of chapter 1, when he speaks of the angels and says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be the heirs of salvation? And the mention of that word, salvation, leads him now to make this practical application at the beginning of chapter 2. I love the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired these Bible writers not to write technical manuals. You know, the Bible is not a technical manual. My son-in-law is an agricultural scientist at the University of Florida, and I have in my library a copy of his PhD thesis. And I have to tell you, the only reason I have a copy of it is as a reminder that he's accomplished something very impressive. Because the fact is, I haven't tried to read it since the first day that I got it. The first day that I received it, I began to thumb through it, and I'd only read a few paragraphs before I realized it was far above my head. It spoke a language with which I was unfamiliar, although it was very impressive that he has all of this knowledge and can use this language and make his arguments like he does, yet it's a bit out of my league. Now, my friends, may I tell you today that the gospel message is something that is not purely technical and clinical and professional. The Bible is not written like a textbook, like a professional scientific journal. The Bible is written pastorally with application to real people who live in a real world. And though we have just examined these ethereal doctrines in the first chapter, I mean, this was some heady stuff, wasn't it? as he spoke of the glory of Christ and the fact that Jesus Christ is the effulgence of the glory of God. He's the radiance of God. He's God, a very God himself. Jesus was divine and is divine. He's the creator. And the angels are special creatures that God has made that are above man, but yet below God in the hierarchy of creation. And they are worshipers of God and agents of providence that God uses to address people in a real world. But above them all, Jesus Christ has been elevated to this exalted position of glory and honor. And as we thought about that, perhaps some of you were saying, Brother Goins, what does this have to do with where I live right now? How does this apply to my life? And isn't that the question that we have as we approach the Bible on a regular basis, how does this affect me? Now, may I caution you, my friends, that we should never approach church or God or the Bible with that question uppermost in our minds. What's in it for me? We should never have a utilitarian or consumer mentality, in other words. You know, when you go to the mall, you're looking for things that you want. You're looking for things that appeal to you. The whole reason for going to the mall is to purchase an item that pleases you. Well, may I say, we shouldn't view religion as a mall and say, okay, I'm going to go and just see how it can improve my life. Because the fact of the matter is, dear friends, there are things more important than you and I as individuals, right? In other words, we don't use God as a means to our personal ends. Very important that we get that in our minds because we're living in a world today in which God is seen as a means to an end. Somebody says, okay, God, don't bother me until I need you. And when I have a crisis, I'll call on you. 
Elder Sonny Powell used to talk about the fact that people treat God like an old spare tire. Now may I ask you, how long has it been since you've thought about your spare? I'm sure some of you probably are Johnny on the spot and you check it to make sure it's full of air and that it's ready to go if you ever need it. But most of us, I suspect, don't think about our spare until what? Until we have a flat and until we need it. And many people treat God like that, like an old spare tire. They don't think about him until they have a crisis in their life and then suddenly it's on their knees in prayer and God, please help me and I need you. But may I say, God is merciful and He does supply our needs and He does give us happiness and He does bless us, but His reason for existence is not to serve us. The fact is we were created to serve Him, right? He doesn't exist to serve us. We were made to serve Him. And it's vitally important then that we understand that we come to church first and foremost, not just to get something for ourselves, but first and foremost to give worship to God who deserves our best esteem. We've come to give him praise because he deserves it, right? And if you don't get anything from the church, may I say, if you've given your praise, if you've given your thanks, if you've worshipped him and said, Lord, even if you never bless me again, you've already blessed me with the greatest blessing that could ever be had this side of eternal bliss, and I owe you eternal praise. The fact is, my beloved, 10,000 eternities will be too short to tell him thank you enough for what he's done for you and me. If we could just understand even an inkling of what he saved us from, if we could get a glimpse of what great grace has been bestowed upon us already, then whether the gas prices ever go down again, or whether you ever are able to add on that room that you want to your home, or whether you're ever able to purchase a new riding lawnmower, whether your dreams and aspirations are ever realized, my beloved, in this world, God has given us the greatest blessing that could ever be had in this world already. So we come to worship him. And the greatest danger that you and I face in our lives is losing sight of that and being distracted from it. And that's the point that he's making in this text this morning. Therefore, after he says that Jesus is superior to the angels, and he makes this point that the angels are ministers to the heirs of salvation, suddenly, as he thinks of that word salvation, he says, I need to make an application to the people. Notice how the truth now that we've been discussing is brought right down to where we live. And the writer says, brethren, we need to be careful that we don't lose focus on this great salvation. God has saved us. Now, let's give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Now, salvation is probably the most familiar word in the Christian vocabulary. Would you agree? Across denominational lines, every believer is familiar with this word salvation. And it's a Bible word, and it's used over and over in the Bible. And what does it mean? Well, it's a picture word which speaks of being rescued from danger. We might think of a firefighter who rescues a little child from a burning building. The family has escaped safely because this person has come in to rescue them from the danger of that structure fire. We might think of a Coast Guard member who dives into the icy waters of the Atlantic in a time of storm to rescue a capsized boat, people that have 
fallen into the water and they pull them into the chopper and they are taken to safety. And you say, thank you for saving my life. You've delivered me. You've rescued me from danger. Well, that's the image in this Bible word, salvation. And the apostle says in our text, we've been given salvation. Notice verse three, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now, I want you to notice that he puts an adjective in front of the noun salvation, and then he puts an adverb in front of the adjective. It's not only salvation that God has given us, but it's, notice the adjective, it's a great salvation. And the word great, like the word better, is one of the key words in the epistle to the Hebrews. The word better appears 12 times in Hebrews. The word great appears 12 times in the book of Hebrews. And it's a very similar word. It speaks of something that is superior. The word speaks of excellence or worth. Something that's great is something valuable, something that is big. You see, this salvation that God has given us, my beloved, is not a trivial matter. It's something big. It's something monumental. It's something significant. What God has done for your soul, my beloved, is not something to just think about in a cavalier sort of way to say, Oh, oh yeah, well, that's interesting. But it's something that is mind-boggling, and it's gigantic. It's big. It's great. It's significant. And the apostle says salvation is a great salvation. You know, in Hebrews, he speaks of our great high priest. But there are many high priests in the Bible. Among the Jews, they had a high priest that filled that office for a period of time, and then they would have another one, and then they would have another one, but not one of them is ever called a great high priest. They are high priests, but not a single one is given this adjective, great high priest, except Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews. He's our great high priest. He's called our great shepherd in Hebrews 13, 20, the great shepherd of the sheep. Now I'm an under shepherd, a pastor of the flock, But you know, there's a shepherd above me. He's the great shepherd. In other words, my beloved, you will always have a pastor in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you ever feel like you're a little sheep, helpless and defenseless in this world, very vulnerable to the perils and pitfalls of life? I'm telling you, my beloved, you have one to take care of you, a shepherd, and he's a great shepherd. He's a great high priest. He's a great shepherd. And it also speaks of a great cloud of witnesses in the book of Hebrews. Notice how this word great is used over and again in the book of Hebrews. He says, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. It's a group of those who've gone before us, who my friends were faithful to God. And there's a great number of them. And they are significant. And if they could be faithful to God in the past, you and I can be faithful in the present. Well, this is the idea here. This adjective great. You've been given a great salvation. And then he adds this adverb to the adjective. So great salvation. Now, I had an English teacher in high school and another in college who told me to avoid the use of terms like very and so because they don't mean anything. You can't gauge them. For instance, when I would say, I am very tired. How tired are you? Very tired. She'd say, well, how do you measure that? That's really an amorphous idea. So she said, if you want to be a good writer, then be more specific in your use of adjectives and adverbs. Don't just say very or so, 
But I want you to notice, dear friends, that the Bible sometimes uses words like this, so great, when language fails to explain just how great it is. You see, when our minds run out of words to express what great things the Lord has done for us, all we can do is resort to the language of exclamation. By the way, the language of exclamation is the language of worship. And say, how great is God? He is so great. How great is his salvation? It is so great. You see, this monosyllable so is often employed in the Bible to express the thought of magnificence and grandeur which cannot be measured, which is beyond description. And I think of that familiar verse in John 3.16, for God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But have you ever noticed the little monosyllable S-O in that text? For God so loved the world. You say, how much did he love the world of his elect? My beloved, it is beyond your calculations. It is beyond any measure by which we can understand it. God's love is so superior to a mother's love for her child, a patriot's love for his country. God's love is so superior to anything with which we're familiar that all we can say is God's love is an out-of-this-world kind of love. God so loved the world. How much does God love you and me today, dear friends? Well, I think he maybe leans and might know he loved you to such a degree that he plucked from his breast the only perfect being that's ever lived in this universe. He took from his very heart this darling of heaven, And he freely delivered him for the likes of you and me. That kind of love cannot be measured. No wonder the hymn writer says, Could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? That is, if the oceans were full of ink, that'd be a lot of ink, wouldn't it? The Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian, the Arctic, all of the oceans were just ink. And every blade of grass and corn stalk and wheat stalk was a writing instrument, a quill. And every human being was a scribe to write his thesis. And the sky was our parchment, our writing tablet. If every person took a stalk and dipped it in the ocean and began to write in the sky the love of God, to write the love of God above, the songwriter says, would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. I'll tell you, they don't write poetry like that anymore. That's how much God loved you. And as wonderful as that poetry is, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of how sublime and superior and magnificent God's great love. It's so great love because it motivated and fueled a so great salvation. You see this word so again when it says being made so much better than the angels. That Jesus Christ has been elevated above the angels. He's better than the angels. Then he's much better. And you say, how much better? So much better than the angels. Jesus Christ, my beloved, is exalted above all of his fellows and above every king upon the earth. He's higher than the highest king to an infinite degree. So, If you could just remember this word, so great salvation. I'm saying this morning that God has given you 
a wonderful gift. He has saved you from a devil's hell. He saved you from an eternity of misery. He's rescued you and me from the danger of divine wrath where the fire is never quenched and the worm dies not. That is, it never ceases. It never changes. It never stops. We've been plucked like a firebrand from the burning, from the coals. He's lifted us from eternal burnings. He's lifted us from the flames of hell. In fact, may I suggest for consideration that we will never truly appreciate what we've been saved to until we understand what we've been saved from. I don't preach a lot about hell. And the reason is because it's not my eternal home. I like to talk about my home, not a place that's not my home. But you know, we can't read the Bible or preach the Bible unless we understand that there is a real place called the lake of fire where the devil and all of his angels and the wicked dead will spend eternity. And you say, Brother Mark, why would we ever want to even consider or contemplate such a theme? And the answer is because that's where you and I would have been had Jesus Christ not reached down his mighty arm and picked us up like a firebrand from the burning, lifted us from the dunghill of iniquity, and made us as a prince to inherit thrones of glory. Yes, my friends, we've been given a great salvation. And one reason that it's a great salvation and so great a salvation, is because it deals with the ultimate issue. You see, God's people in olden times were the beneficiaries of many salvations. That's one of the important things in interpreting the Bible is it will open your eyes when you realize that the word salvation or the verb to save in the Bible is not always speaking of salvation in its ultimate sense. For instance, salvation in the Bible is a word that is applied to a number of different things, including salvation from hell to heaven, but it's also applied to salvation from drowning. You remember when Peter said, Lord, save or I perish? He was sinking in the waters of the Sea of Galilee. Lord, save or I perish. Is he thinking about going to hell when he says, Lord, save me or I'm perishing. No, he's thinking about drowning. Lord, I'm sinking and I need somebody to lift me up. And sometimes when the Bible speaks of salvation, it's talking about deliverance from a temporal or a timely kind of danger. For instance, in the book of Judges, we read that God sent saviors to save them. And as you read through that book, you'll see that they were under danger from the Amalekites and from the Midianites, and from the Syrians, and from the Philistines, and God raised up Samson, and Deborah, and Barak, and Eli, and these other judges to deliver them. Samuel was the last of the judges to save them from their enemy. Gideon, you remember how Gideon, God used Gideon to save the Israelites from Midianite oppression? That's a temporal or political salvation. Now, may I say every one of us today has been saved, delivered, Many times over in our lives from danger, haven't we? Has God ever delivered you from an automobile accident on the highways? I'm confident he's delivered me more times than I'm aware of. I'll never forget a scrape I had in my early 20s with somebody who was following me too closely and uh, trying to run me off the road in a very deserted place in New Mexico in the wee hours of the morning. I'll never forget the danger and how I prayed to God. And I can look back today with 2020 hindsight and see that God delivered me. 
I don't know what the intention was of these people, but I do know that they were up to no good. And I'm sure that I've been delivered many times over, dear friends, from all sorts of perils in my life. You have too, no doubt. God has been with you. The very reason you're here today and still halfway sane is evidence that God has delivered you many times over, hasn't he? And aren't we thankful for his salvations? I need to be saved every day. I need to be saved from myself, most of all, from pride and anger and jealousy and lust and covetousness and worldliness. I need to be saved, my friends, from the many pitfalls in my attitudes, my thinking that can bring harm and destruction to my family and my church and my life. I need to be saved from disease. I need to be saved from cancer and from diabetes and heart disease. And we need God to help us to provide our needs, don't we? Every day we pray for deliverance. And the children of Israel in the Old Testament, the people of God were saved from Egypt. You remember when God delivered them across the Red Sea. He sent these ten plagues upon the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh finally softened enough to say, okay, you may leave. But then not long after they had finally left, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he decided to pursue after them. And they came to the Red Sea with Pharaoh and his 600 chosen chariots behind them. And Migdal and Pi-Haroth, the two mountains on either side, and the Red Sea in front of them. That is, they were hemmed in. They had nowhere to flee, to go. But God in his mercy sent a wall of fire to stand between the Egyptians and the Israelites by night. And while the Fire stood between them to keep the enemy at bay. God parted the waters of the Red Sea and Moses and over one million children of Israel crossed on dry ground through the Red Sea safely to the other side. When Pharaoh and his army decided to do the same, they got down into the middle of the water and God caused the waters to come together and they drowned Pharaoh and his host in the depths of the sea and the children of Israel sang the song of deliverance the Lord has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Yes, my friends, what a great deliverance that was. Would you say that was a great salvation? What about when the Philistines said to the children of Israel with their giant named Goliath, whoever wins the battle between our champion and your champion, that will determine the future of the entire nation. That is, if we win, then you will be our servants. If your champion wins against our giant named Goliath, then we will be your servants. The stakes were high. What a monumental and epical event this was. But my beloved, God sent a little shepherd boy to deliver them. And David took the stone in his sling, you remember? And he let it go and it lodged into the forehead of Goliath like a musket ball from a musket loader. And uh, he fell to the ground, dead as a hammer is the theological way to describe it. The children of Israel celebrated with joy and gladness that the Lord had triumphed gloriously. He had won a great victory. What a great deliverance that was. May I say those deliverances pale into insignificance compared to what happened at Mount Calvary when the perfect Son of God became a Son of Man John Calvin put it like this. He says, The Son of God became a Son of Man, that the sinful sons of men might become sons of God. My beloved, as Jesus hung upon that cross as the substitute for God's chosen elect, 
And the wrath of God was poured upon him in your stead and in mine. May I say that there's never been a deliverance affected which was as significant and as important and that had eternal consequence. The ramifications of what happened at Calvary, my beloved, cannot be confined to just a political reprieve from danger or just a personal deliverance from disease or from sorrow. But this deliverance has eternal ramifications. The word eternal appears in the book of Hebrews over and again. He speaks of the fact that we've been saved from eternal judgment in Hebrews 6.2. Hebrews 5.9 says that Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation. That is, he's the one from whom it came. Eternal salvation. This is not salvation in a timely way. He's talking about eternal, ultimate salvation. The reason this salvation is so great that the gospel reports to us this morning, my beloved, is because it deals with ultimate, ultimate issues. Now, if you're like me, we get tunnel vision, right? We get poor blindness. We're nearsighted. We see the problems of the moment. What's going on in your life right now? You say, well, I've got, I've got some weeds coming up in my garden and it is just driving me nuts. Or maybe you say, my allergies have run amok. The pollen is just at my biggest, that's the biggest issue in my life. And of course, those are problems. I understand. I'm concerned about them and it's not wrong for us to be focused on them as well. But I'm saying, my friends, that may we never lose sight of the big picture. The ultimate issue is that you would have been sent and I would have been sent to a devil's hell for eternity had God the Son not come down voluntarily and taken my place and your place on Calvary's rugged hill and hung there suspended between heaven and earth for sinners like us. Oh, dear friend, this is a great, it's a so great salvation. And there's nothing more important than this. And through his death on the cross, 2 Corinthians 1.10 says he's delivered us from so great a death. I like the way he says that, don't you? You know, there are three salvations in that verse. The apostle says that God hath delivered us, past tense, from so great a death. He doth deliver, present tense. And in whom we trust, he shall yet deliver us, future tense. Salvation in three time zones. Anytime you think of God saving people in the Bible, understand that salvation is a concept that has to do with past deliverance, present ongoing deliverances, and a future ultimate deliverance. But you see, in the past, he's already delivered you. He's already saved you from so great a death. Death means separation. Separation from God is the worst kind of death imaginable. Can you imagine not having God to talk to when you had a need? Can you imagine not having God to help you bear your burdens? Can you imagine being separated from God for eternity? Oh, what a horrific thought that that is. But I'm telling you, Jesus has already delivered us from so great a death. And that's why he speaks of this salvation as a fact in our text, a present reality. Salvation is not something in process, but it's something that has already happened. And it's a fact. Chapter 1, verse 3 of Hebrews says, when he had by himself purged, past tense, our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love how the book of Hebrews uses the past tense verb over and again. 
having obtained, Hebrews 9, 12, eternal redemption for us. He's purged past. Jesus didn't just make a stab at purging our sins. He purified. He purged us. He cleansed us. He finished the work of salvation. I love to preach that message. Don't you love to think of a successful Savior? I'm so glad I don't have to preach a Savior who's trying to save sinners, but man just won't help him. Who's frustrated and foiled and thwarted in everything that he wants to do. The poor sinners just too obstinate and rebellious. I'm glad to believe in a God, my friends, who's able to break through every obstacle. Who's able to reach his children wherever they may be. And his grace is irresistible and his power is unfailing and his call is effectual. And his work on the cross was finished. He came to do a work. My friends, he didn't just make men savable at the cross. He saved them. He purged us from our sins. This salvation is a fact. You say, then Brother Mike, why does the text say, how shall we escape if we reject so great salvation? It doesn't say that. You say, if salvation is a fact, then why does the text say we can reject it? It doesn't say reject. Read it again. How shall we escape if we not reject? Neglect. So great salvation. There's a difference in neglecting and rejecting. You can't neglect something unless you have it, right? I am not neglecting my garden this year. You know why? I didn't plant one. <laughs> the best way to keep from having trouble with your garden is just don't worry about it. You can't neglect something unless you are in possession of it, right? He didn't say that we can reject this. You can't reject it. This is a gift. This salvation is already a fact. It's given to you. It's a reality. Jesus has procured it. The Holy Spirit makes it personal when you're born again. And once you're saved, you will never lose that salvation. We're preserved in Jesus Christ. As Jude verse 1 says, we are kept in the love of God. We are safe in the hands of the good shepherd and no man can pluck the sheep out of his hand. I'm telling you, if the Lord loved you enough to save you on the cross, he's not going to let the devil get a hold of you and ruin you for eternity. Now the old devil, though he can't take away what Christ has given you for eternity, he can make our lives miserable. He can defeat us in this world, can't he? And that's why we need this message to be reminded of the great victory that's been given to us. We can't reject this salvation, but my friends, we can neglect it. And did you know that the only thing you need to destroy something good in your life is negligence. Negligence will destroy what is good in your life more completely than anything else. You know, if I did have a garden and I wanted to destroy it, the way to do it would not be to go down and buy a five-gallon bucket of Roundup and spray it all, or maybe buy uh, some Morton salt and just salt the ground and sterilize the ground. Now that would do it. But I could easily just accomplish the same thing. I could ruin my garden, not by poisoning the ground, but by just not tilling the ground, pulling the weeds, watering it, fertilizing it, by just neglecting it, right? How can you destroy your home? How can you destroy a house? So, well, you could set fire to it, that's right. You could um, flood it, that's right. You could take a bulldozer and level it, raise it to the ground, that's right. But you could also just neglect it. Just don't correct the things that are going wrong, right? 
just never fasten the nails back in that are starting to pop out. Never repair the leaks that are developing in the roof. By just refusing to maintain it through negligence, you can accomplish the same thing. That's what Proverbs says, through much slothfulness a house falleth through. Just by being slothful and lazy. My beloved, the greatest peril and danger facing you and me as Christians today in the church as a whole is not the government and it's not the health crisis and it's not anything that this world might pose against us. The greatest danger facing us today is being distracted from the gospel, losing focus on the Lord, and just neglecting our souls. You can ruin your life by not reading, not attending church, not praying, getting caught up in the rat race and just not considering Jesus. Before you know it, You'll start to slide down the slippery slope. And pretty soon, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, you can reach a point in which you have forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. Now, I don't think that that means that if somebody were to remind you, if you were to go to a funeral and a preacher were to say, Jesus saved his people from their sins at the cross, that you'd say, oh yeah, I remember that. But it means that it, you can reach a point that it doesn't mean anything to you anymore. This word in our text, slip, we ought to give the more earnest heed, pay attention to the things that we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. That word slip speaks of a boat that has come loose from its moorings. You ever tied a boat to a, maybe a, an object and you thought that it was secure, but your knot wasn't secure? Maybe you didn't even tie a knot, you just wrapped it a few times, put a rock on it, but then a gust of wind came or something happened and it slipped from its moorings and it began to drift. That's the thought here. Drifting is something that happens without us realizing that it's happening. You see, the gospel or the good news of this great salvation is so important. And therefore, because it's so important, it calls for more earnest attention lest we let these things slip. As I get older, my mind slips like an old transmission. Yours get like that? You know, I used to have a car that you try to put it in gear and it'd have trouble and sometimes it'd go out of gear and the transmission needed to be rebuilt. It was slipping. And my mind gets like that sometimes. I start, I'm, I'm leaking. <laughs> Do you have leaks? I'm, I'm leaking. My, I lose the things that, are, that I hear. They slide away and they slip away and they leak out. And I start to drift. That's why I need to be reminded on a regular basis. That's why we need to be in the house of God to hear the gospel preach. You say, Brother Mike, there's so many more important things than the gospel that you old Baptists preach. Why can't you preach about something besides Jesus and the cross? Because there's nothing more important. And there's nothing that will keep you in touch with what matters the most in your life. God has done for you the greatest thing that could ever be done. Nothing that ever happens to you in this world can equal what he's given you. And love so amazing, so divine demands our souls and our lives and our all. Therefore, let us give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard. Lest at any time we should let them slip, we should begin to drift, just exist in this life. Let us be careful that we don't neglect what God has done for us. Neglect its truth. Neglect to think about it. Neglect to implement the truth into our lives and to live in a manner that is consistent with it. Because if those who lived under Moses' law received the just recompense 
of reward for their disobedience. We've been given a superior blessing. Greater privilege calls for greater responsibility from us in the new covenant.